0: a Bible with you this evening. We're going to be in the book of Romans once again. The new Bibles that we have now in the chairs, you'll find it on Romans chapter 3, you'll find it on page 940 and then on over to 941. Romans chapter 3, begin reading at verse 9. You know, the Lord tells us in John chapter 10 that he is the good shepherd and he speaks. And that's to say his sheep hear his voice. Well, this is where we hear his voice. It is in his word. So let's give give attention and have hearts ready to receive and eager to believe. Romans 3 at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we turn to you now in your word, asking for your special help. We know, Lord, that you do accompany your word, that you are right here with us. And so bring home to our hearts all that you would have for us, that we would be strong in faith and strong in service to Christ, obeying our Lord and Master and King. Hear us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The story is told that it was 1747, 1747, that John Newton, he's aboard this ship and he's making his way back home. He indeed is serving as a shipmate uh, to some commanding officer there on board, but he's heading back home to Liverpool. And we know that he had, you know, many months, many years, frankly, many years, where uh, he was a seafarer of sorts, and there's a whole story behind that. But on this particular voyage back home to Liverpool, where he was living, there was this violent, very heart-gripping attention-getting storm that took place. So it's a violent storm that's on the high seas here. And it's in those same days that he had been spending time reading the old Thomas Kempis book, uh, The Imitation of Christ, the old old 13th century, uh, 14th century book by that Dutchman, uh, Thomas. And uh, it was a book about devotional living It was a book about seeing all of life through the living God, God God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but particularly being given over to Christ and leaning on Christ for all of life. And there was a particular section, evidently, that John Newton himself was gripped by, and it was a section having to do with how short life is, its brevity, that it can be just snuffed out right now. Well, it's in those same days, heading back home to England with this violent storm and reading this book, that he says that that is when he first confessed Christ. That he was uh, brought to his knees before the Almighty God there in those periods, in that days of those days of the storm. He was converted. He later became an Anglican minister. And then just a short time after that, about five years after becoming an Anglican minister there, Church of England, he began to write the hymns, and it was, at a, it was at a Thursday night prayer service. So he is. He's at a prayer meeting. It's a prayer service going on, and it was always his desire that each and every week at that Thursday night prayer service, he would write a new hymn, and it's from those prayer meetings. We have some 280 hymns of Newton's that came to us, some 280 hymns. And we have these words Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed? Precious grace. I'd like to talk about that a bit as we start here this evening. Precious grace. Grace, indeed, is precious. Why? It's precious to the believer. It's precious to you tonight. You're in Christ Jesus this evening. God's grace is precious to you. Why? I'd like to boil it down to just a couple of reasons. Why is it precious to us? What's the dominant reason we find in the New Testament, the Bible itself? It's because we have a sense of belonging. What a great benefit grace is to us. That's to say, we're now reconciled to God. No longer are we separated. We're not, we're not alienated from God, without God, without hope in the world. But fundamentally, we have a place of belonging with our God. Grace is precious to us because we have a belonging with our God. Secondly, fundamentally, in the New Testament as well, why is grace precious? Because we now have meaning and purpose. Not only See, not only do we have reconciliation to our God all through the blood of Christ, by faith in Jesus. Not only do we have reconciliation, we also have restoration. And what do we mean by restoration? That's to say, we now are restored to God that we might serve him. Lord, you know, that's why there's that strong theme throughout the prophets, here I am, I am your servant, O Lord, That, that, that kind of echo that comes. Here I am, I am your servant, O Lord, Speak, your servant is listening. Those are all, that's all language of service. That's all language of God. I am here to give you glory. I'm here to give you glory and honor. So fundamentally, we have a sense of belonging. Lord, we're now yours. You belong to us. We belong to you. You're our God. We're reconciled and we're also restored to him with purpose and meaning and direction, all that he has. Uh, for our lives. Now, John Newton knew this. Newton knew what it was to be, n- to, to be alienated from God, uh, ruined in his sin, miserable in his lot, in his plight of, of being, in, being in rebellion of God, and he needed to be reconciled. And at the same time, Newton, through his writings, he, w- he, would, he would speak often about now with his eyes open he can see and that's to say be restored to god and to walk with his father and his savior and to live out all of his days now newton will look back on his life and he'll refer to himself even even toward the end of his life as a blasphemer of god <laughs> why because he, he lived constantly with that awareness of his sin nature He was in constant awareness of that sin nature. That sin nature would not be purged in its finality until the day of Christ Jesus, and he would go to glory. But he was aware until the the weeks and the months there, those last months of his life, and referred to himself in his letters and his journal as a blasphemer. He knew about his own sin. That is our topic tonight. It's a topic related to sonship. Remember, we're going through a number of series a number of sermons on a series of sonship. What does it mean to be adopted of God? You know, we have this kind of language uh, in our own Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a doctrinal statement. It's a summary statement that helps us in guiding us with with Bible understanding and the Christian life. But we have this kind of language that we're declared in Christ, we're legally declared in Christ to be adopted. And what, are, what, what is this language? To be received into God's family, to be adopted, to be received into that number of his own. That's the real language we have, the number of his own. Why? That we might then have the rights and privileges as sons of God, to have rights and privileges. Our topic tonight is keeping in mind our, our sinful condition. Even though we are sons and daughters, we have to keep in mind that sinful condition uh, that we are all, uh, you know, that Scripture speaks so, so patently about, and, and, we, and we must be aware. Again, that's why I wanted to think about Newton a bit tonight and wanted to think about this, this lesson, you know, once I was lost, even as sons and daughters, to be uh, mindful of our sin uh, and our condition as sinners. Uh, two lessons tonight one is the darkness of sin, we're under a cloud of sin, the darkness of sin. And then a second lesson about ungodliness, ungodliness. It comes from these scriptures here, Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 9 with me. Paul is summarizing in this chapter. He's summarizing all mankind. He's summarizing Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles. And he is saying there at verse 9, all, both Jews and Greeks, what? Are under sin. That's the language here, under sin. And I take that as our cue tonight. To be under, to be under is to be under a cloud. Under a cloud of what? A a darkness. It's also metaphorical to speak about being under power. Now, later on in chapter 5 and 6, we'll talk about the power and the dominion of sin. We're going to relate some of it tonight, just in brief. But here Paul begins at verse 9, that we're under something. We are under sin, and it's like an influence. It's like a domination. It's like pervasive uh, control. And right away, we've got room for application right away. When we start thinking about sin and being a dark cloud and something under which, under which we live of our natural condition to be under sin, right away there is life application here. When we start talking about sin and we start talking about sin and being aware of that remaining nature of sin in us, it's so easy. Isn't it though? Watch this now. It is so easy for us in the Christian life to think that the Christian life is first and foremost a way of life. Whenever sin is the topic, and that's our topic tonight, and we're thinking about being under its influence and its remaining influence until the last day that we're with the Lord Jesus Christ, it's very easy to, then to start thinking, that, well, the Christian life It's it's heart and core is a way of life. And so we start thinking about ourselves as finding new habits. You want to overcome your sin? Then look to yourself for self-renewal. New habits, a new way of life, new feelings. And it can even become new day-to-day superstition and Christians are very superstitious. I read my Bible one day, I'm gonna have a great day. Watch out friends, I'm gonna have a great day, (laughs) right? Now, God ordinarily blesses his word to be sure, but we can become superstitious about that. I pray so long, I read so many chapters, I, I, I carry out some aspect of, of, of a kindness of some kind. It's all superstition. It's a way of life. Whenever we're talking about sin, we easily fall into this trap, thinking that the Christian life, at its heart and core, is a way of life. It is not a way of life. Also, another warning about application here. We can think that Christianity as well is a, is a system of beliefs. It's a set of doctrines. It's a set of standards. So now watch this one. When we start thinking beyond that, oh, yeah, we, we you know, yeah, it's, it's a way of life. And, oh, yeah, we get trapped into this one as well. It's a set of doctrines. It's a set of beliefs. With sin lurking, with sin nearby, and that's our topic, Romans 3, with sin being nearby, we then start to transform things at the Christian life in it being a set of beliefs, a set of doctrines. The Christian life is more education. Well, 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 hey, I just need need to teach you something more here. I I just need to bring you some area of education, some area of application. You you just need to get your mind set on some particular area of education and truth. And just as we say, are there aspects of where Christianity is the Christian life, it's a way of life? Absolutely. Are there aspects where education is needful? Absolutely. But you see, we can teach people forever and a day. There can be expositors, ministers behind the pulpit teaching, unsaved. There can be professors of Christianity teaching the high grandiose sets of doctrines and 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 high-minded mysteries of the things of the Gospels or the things of Paul's letters and not be saved. Educated, but spiritually darkened. So you see, when we start talking about the doctrine of sin, we can start moving in this area that it's up to me with renewal of life to overcome my sin, or it's up to me and how well I become educated or the facts that I master, the doctrines that I traffic in, and we can be lost in both cases. And you see, let's, let's, let's keep bringing it into the area of being sons and daughters. When it comes to a way of life, we can easily slip into the trap thinking that I have to, you know, regain. We put that word re, that little preface there. Uh, that, that prefix on those words, to regain, to reestablish, to reorient it with my father, father, in that sense of being a trap. And we think that we, we think to ourselves mistakenly that it's my efforts, my renewal, my new attempts. Or I just simply want to regain the care of my father once again. And it's all works. It's all works. Or over here, in terms of education, we can be thinking to ourselves, well, certainly, a father and a son relationship, a father and a daughter relationship, sonship and doctrine that way, the doctrine of adoption, we would think to ourselves that certainly by taking in more and more of a, in our own strength, more and more in our own ways, You see, in in both cases, we can be pursuing with education and discipleship, but apart from Jesus Christ. That's why fundamentally the gospel is always to be the focus. So when Paul is talking about the darkness and the cloud and the oppression and the tyranny of sin, when he says to us, all are under sin, Paul is making plain That apart from Jesus Christ, man has no hope. And thus, we are to be turning to Christ, seeking his face, walking with him, our God and Savior, confessing our sin to him, telling him, Oh, Father, it is not my ability to master uh, more of the statements that are found in doctrinal books, more of the technical language of theology. Oh, Father, it is not this. I need your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And through Christ, to have that newness of life. Through Christ, to have that newness of that way of renewal. Trusting in our works is so, so tricky and so sneaky. We'll come back to see more of this at a later time, but I just simply reference that the the matter of sin's existence still the matter of sin's existence still i like what here what uh, sinclair ferguson writes he says in talking about paul's focus about the dominion or the reign of sin this does not mean that the inherent nature of sin has changed i like that we have a tendency to think that sin has changed It does not mean that the inherent nature of sin has changed, even though its rights over the believer has been brought to an end. Its rights over the believer has been brought to an end. Nor does it mean that the presence of sin is eradicated. <clears throat> so as sons and daughters, we tell our father, Father, this sin hymns me in. This sin is indeed misdirecting me. This sin is stirring up with me desires and enticements, allurements. We tell him plainly of sin's existence, and it's not a renewal of a change of life of our own. It's not more education. It's going to Christ and saying, Christ, you're the one to forgive. You're the one to give repentance. You're the one to enable. In the second place here tonight, talking about sin, there is ungodliness. Not only is sin something we're under, and it's like a dark cloud, but there is ungodliness, Let's go on down to verses 10, 11, and part of 12. Watch these words now. In verse 10, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Verse 12, all have, sin- all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Now, I didn't count how many times no and not and none appear. But Paul is driving home a point here. Man is completely bent in on his own way. And it's this matter of complete and total inability. None is righteous. No, not even one. Thoroughly, completely, all of humanity. No, not even one. No one what? No one understands. No one what? No one seeks for God. And then he summarizes verse 12, all have turned aside. They're being bent in on their own, in in their own way, their own self-serving way. All have turned aside and together they become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. So he moves from this this language that no one understands to no one does good. He moves from the way men and women think and the way men men and women live. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one does good, not even one. And to summarize, he's talking about man's fundamental condition. It's that condition of sin, and what is it? It's ungodliness. No, none. No, not one. All have turned. What is it? It's all abandonment. It's abandonment of God. It's to put him away, attempts to put him away. And how so? The Apostle John reminds us sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is lawlessness, some of our translations say. It's abandoning God. It's lawlessness. It's putting God away. It's rejecting him. It's maligning him. It's abhorring him. Some of the summaries out of the Old Testament here. Uh, We read here from the book of Job, we desire not the knowledge of your ways. Speaking of God, we desire not the knowledge of your ways. Psalm 12, who is the Lord over us? We are lords. We want to be bent in our own way. We want to go our own way. We've turned together all to the side. And then finally in Jeremiah chapter 2, we will come to you no more. That's to say, we abandon you. We are putting you away. It's un. Godliness. Paul will tell Timothy, understand the difficult times, Timothy. People will be lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Now, if in the earlier part of Romans 3, just this up in verse 9, we've been speaking about being under the dark power of sin, if that's verse 9, this section is underscoring. Man's ungodly bent, his headlong pursuit of the absence of God. The absence of God. Now, one practical application about this headlong pursuit about abandoning God, transgressing his law, maligning his character, living in ways... That would show a bent in on ourselves, altogether turning aside, as Paul is saying. One practical way to, to come to grips with is this matter that we need a Savior who loves righteousness, he loves godliness, <laughs> he loves in his character, in his words, and in his, in his thought patterns. his his service to others, his neighborly kindness. It's just full and altogether a character of godliness. He's a lover of God, a lover of his neighbor. And Jesus tells us in John chapter 7, his thought patterns are all after his father. My doctrine is not mine. There it is. The sinful man has his own teaching, his own mental makeup, with which is all of lacking understanding. No one understands, Romans 3.10. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Our Savior said, my doctrine is not mine, but is his who sent me. His mind, as we, as we may say, is all made over according to his Father's will. Amen? Amen. <laughs> yeah. He lives unto his Father in heart, in life, in thought patterns, in his teaching. And then he goes on to say in John chapter 7, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. So he's warning his listeners at that point, I'm not that way. I do not speak of my own. I do not then seek my own glory. He goes on to say in John chapter 7, But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. That's our Savior. That's why we preach Christ. Man is bent in on himself. Man is altogether gone to the side. Man himself has no understanding. Man himself does not seek God. No, not one. No one does good, as Paul says there in verse uh, 12 no one does good no not even one but oh how we worship the lord jesus christ tonight he's all together in life and heart and character all together thoroughly righteous seeking his father's glory so whether he lives or in how he acts and ministers and certainly going to calvary's cross he is our savior and our lord to the very end I close here reminding us that in the Christian life, it is very easy to wander away from God's truth, that accurate diagnosis about sin. It's it's easy to wander away from God's truth. It's easy to wander away remembering sin's inherent nature, it wreaks havoc. Sinclair Ferguson reminds us that the rights, the privileges, the authority through Christ, by the Spirit, according to the promises of God, are ours over sin. But the fact of the matter of its existence and its inherent nature of longing to dominate, longing to influence, it should get us our attention. But we, we have a tendency to wander away from sin's wickedness, the peril, the dread of sin. And his sons and daughters, we want to stay close with our Father. Father, hold us fast. Keep us close. May we be conscious of your, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. May we flee to him alone and not wander off the path. Not wander off the path. The story is told that out in Yellowstone Park, Yellowstone National Park, the Wyoming, Wyoming area out there, that northwest part of Wyoming, that there's some 10,000 geysers, pools of different kinds, those, those places where there are many are attracted to because of those hot baths, <laughs> you know, uh, places for uh, therapy of different kinds. But the park rangers warn us There are signs everywhere, do not wander off of the boardwalk. And so many visitors to the park do. Two and three each year will wander off of the the boardwalk, the slats there on the trails, and they'll go their own ways. Why? They want to get a closer look to the geyser. They want to be closer up to those pools where there are those, those very, very hot waters even to be attracted there for even maybe some medicinal purpose, some kind of therapy purpose or what have you. And Peg and I know a family, a particular college-aged boy. He's with his sister on this one particular boardwalk and walking the way and they, they wandered off. They got off the trail some 200 yards, 200 yards off. And he only bends down to check the temperature, which of course is scalding hot, right? 200 degrees, 250 degrees, he slips and he falls. Homeschool student, student that many of our children were involved with, with a speech club, speech and debate club, but a student well-known in the Christian community, dear man, but you wander off the trail, it looks attractive, and it's full of dread. And Paul is reminding us here we need Christ, right? Not to wander off the trail and not to think to ourselves that sin is something you know, light and likely to be taken. Uh, John Newton was this one who was aware of that sin to the very end of his life. He knew, he knew that his eyes had been opened by grace. But he knew that he needed to cling to Christ by faith, moment by moment in his life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the discipleship that you give us. That through Jesus Christ, he has come to be the one to take our place and be our substitute. That sin might be defeated, overturned completely, and thus conquered. And so we would pray, O Lord, that we would learn more and more what, is it, what it is to walk in fellowship with our God through His Son. We pray that you would be our help. You would continue to strengthen us. We would turn to Christ, who is altogether godly, the lover of God, faithful in service, the one who is true and holy and harmless, and undefiled. We praise you, O Father, for the righteousness provided through Jesus Christ. Our trust is in him. Be with us now, we ask, encourage us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.